feel like I am super loud. Can you lower me down for a bit? Not completely, but you can't mute me. You can try, you can try though. <laughs> um, so we've got uh, today and then next Sunday will be the last bit of uh, church history that we're going to do. Uh, Next week is going to be, or we're going to look at mega churches, kind of where they came from and uh, what they, they look like, what they've done well in America, which is kind of an American phenomenon, although we've, we've shipped some of that out. Um, but uh, that kind of movement was, was really started in America, um, and we'll look at that in time. Um, this week, we're looking at um, black church and social justice is what I'm going to talk to you about. So originally I was going to talk to you just about the civil rights movement and about the, the church's function in that. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I, I kind of wanted to back up from that. I think that that would have been um, a worthwhile just to talk about the civil rights movement and, and kind of catch us up on things if we needed to be caught up on it. <clears throat> um, but I think we need to kind of backtrack and talk about um, the nature of the black church and why, for things like the civil rights movement, the black church was so heavily involved in stuff like that. Um, after all, the civil rights movement was primarily about the sort of legal status of people, not just in the South, but all over America, where folks could sit on a bus, uh, what kind of lunch counters they could eat off of. Uh, it was about public education and how the United States was handling that public education separate but equal. Um, it was about the rights of people to be able to vote. It was about where those people could be, be told to live and things like that. And it, as we look at that kind of list, it's very clear that those are indeed, you know, civil issues. Those are issues of politics in America, making laws in America. If we, if we list them out like that, they don't seem to be heavily religious, um, and, and it, from a number of, of, from our standpoint, I think, it seems as though um, the church being involved in those kinds of things is, is almost overstepping the bounds of religion, or um, it is overly political, in a sense. And so, um, I've heard this complaint about uh, the black church in general, and by the way, I want to say at the beginning a couple of things. One, we're going to talk about the black church in general, which is a huge thing, um, which when we talk in generalities about that, you've got to understand that they're, they're just generalities. Um, uh, some of these things are going to be true of a number of churches, and some of them will be true of none of their churches, and so uh, it's not, it's not a, a sort of monolith type of thing. Um, that's the first caveat. The second caveat is about myself. Um, I've read some, uh, certainly not enough to be considered an expert, and so um, I'm, I'm going to give you what I can off of what I have read, and I think that what I'm saying is true and right and good, and uh, I hope that it is, um, but, but I do want to say at the beginning of this that I'm, I'm no expert, but um, what I've heard uh, as people characterize the African-American church or the black church um, is that the black church is a liberal church um, in general, uh, and this is shown in the fact that they are overly concerned with so social justice issues and not with individual conversion. conversion. And so um, we're going to talk about that little component of, 
what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about liberalism um, was the fundamentalist response to that was to focus on the gospel as a, as a converting instrument, a saving thing, but not so much a social thing. Um, and so a lot of people have seen that the, the African-American church has fallen on the liberal side of that because of their insistence on things like the civil rights movement and other things like that. Um, and because they're, they're often labeled as being overly concerned with social justice, they're labeled as sort of a, a liberal church. Um, what I want to do today is, um, I, I, don't, I don't know that I want to push back against that, but I want to reform at least a little bit in how we think about that. Um, and what I want to do then is, is talk about the history of the black church going back, um, not all the way to the beginning, but to Frederick Douglass in the middle part of the 18, uh, 1800s, and, and show us as, as a primarily white church, um, why it was both understandable that the church was involved in these sorts of social issues from the very beginning, and then how it is justifiable biblically that they are that way. Um, and I, I want to do both of those things. So in order to do that, though, we need to go back and sort of rehash um, some of the history of the civil rights era um, up to... Martin Luther King, and then, and then, of course, beyond that, but um, rehash the black experience sort of in America to talk about why this was such a huge deal. Um, so it wasn't just slavery uh, that African Americans had to endure for, for centuries. Um, there were also other things that came up along the way that has made their life much more difficult than the average white person. Um, even the rights of African Americans were restricted after slavery, and even before slavery, things like the Fugitive Slave Law meant that people who were enslaved were not free anywhere in the United States. So we're going to talk more about that law, but the, um, the uh, Fugitive Slave Law in 1850 made it so that if, if you were a slave who was in Virginia, and you escaped from your master, and you escaped up to New York State, where there is freedom, there is no slavery in New York State. The federal state slave law made it, it wasn't called the federal slave law, it was just kind of the, the local or the colloquial name of it, um, made it illegal for you to not be returned to your master. So what it wasn't was that if your master came and grabbed you, then you had to be returned. It was once you were identified as a runaway slave, it was a federal law that you had to be returned to your master. So even if the people in New York looked at you and said, no man can be another man's property. The federal government said, yes, you have to return them, and you will be punished if you don't do that. You're harboring a, a federal, uh, you're harboring a slave, which is against federal, you're breaking federal law to provide mercy and care to that person. You are to send them back to Virginia, okay? And so, um, there wasn't any sort of freedom for slaves anywhere. There was no place that they could escape. It was one of the reasons why a lot of them escaped to Canada was because Canada didn't have laws like that. Um, Canada was obviously a separate country, and so they didn't have to escape there. But even after the Emancipation Proclamation um, and the 13th Amendment went through, the South specifically, although this was not just the South, um, 
worked very quickly to sort of hinder and limit the freedoms of black people. So the 13th Amendment reads this way, and it has one major flaw in what the amendment says that allowed people, especially in the South, uh, to capture, um, to, to use it in a way that was harmful to African Americans. The 13th Amendment reads this way. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Okay, what's the flaw in that? The flaw in that is that accept clause, right? So you can't have slaves unless they've been convicted and duly convicted. So what ended up happening in the South is that African Americans could be brought in under almost any, any sort of desire that the sheriff or somebody had at the time, and they could be duly convicted with a trial of their peers. And who would those peers almost always have been? White people, not black people. They would have been white people. Um, and so this was part of the way in which African-American labor was still used in the South um, as, a, as a way of promoting the interests of the South. Um, this was part of what we generally call Jim Crow. Uh, Jim Crow was a series of these sort of social conventions and laws that made African-Americans um, quite clearly second-class citizens. Um, it was a caste system, so if you think of of, uh, typically when we think of a caste system, we think of India uh, and the, the way that those castes are, are relayed, but this was quite clearly a caste system that whites were in a completely different caste than African Americans. And so it was a way of saying like social, not just laws, but like social conventions of how African Americans and whites needed to interact with one another. So there was no African American who, no matter how much education he got, no matter how erudite he showed himself, no matter how honorable, no matter how godly he, he displayed himself, did not have to toe the line when it came to even a teenage boy, right? So that teenage boy could mouth off to him, and Jim Crow basically said, as an African-American, you can't say anything to him, right? There is, there is no response from that lower caste to the higher class, which is ever going to be acceptable. Um, it didn't just have that. Uh, it wasn't just a social convention, but it was also legal protections against people. Um, you also have things like the 15th Amendment. So the 15th Amendment, which is the Voting Rights Amendment, um, and this is particularly for men. Women's suffrage would come much later, but this is for, for men. Um, section 1 of the 15th Amendment says, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Okay? So race, color, or previous condition of servitude. You can't deny based on that. But again, the 15th Amendment leaves open the idea that you can limit based on other factors. So how did the, again, primarily in the South, limit the ability of African Americans to vote? What did they do? Had to take literacy tests. Um, yeah, so this is, this is an example of a, the state of Louisiana's literacy test. There's 30 questions on this. You have to answer all of these questions in 10 minutes. They're not particularly hard, um, but they are worded very, very poorly. And they're worded poorly in such a way that if they wanted to deny you, they could deny you. So um, let's see. 
There's a couple on here that I wanted. Um, and again, this is in the context of keeping African Americans from the vote when African Americans would not have been getting the same kind of education that white Americans would have been getting, right? So education is gonna play an important role in all of this. They were continually reducing the amount of education that, that African Americans could have in order that, um, in order that they could keep them from, from being able to um, vote and do other things. So for instance, question 20 is spell backwards forwards. Right. Um, so, so are you are you spelling backwards forwards? Are you spelling the word backward the right way, or are you spelling the word forward backwards? And now it seems like if you're asking the test, if you were taking this in high school, you'd be like, "Well, that's a poorly worded question." But obviously, what they mean is for me to spell the word forwards backwards. But because it's written in that way, it doesn't matter if you do the work right. If they want to deny you the right to vote, they can say, "No, you didn't." You didn't answer this. And you've got to answer every single one of these questions correctly in order to have the right to vote. Okay? Um, uh, uh, print a word that looks the same whether it is printed forwards or backwards. Okay? So if you wrote down Bob, they would say, no, Bob doesn't count because the bees actually face in a unique direction. If you put a mirror up to it, then the, the bee is going the opposite direction. So that doesn't, that doesn't count. So there's a whole bunch of ways that they can, you can look at the test later if you want to come up and see it. But there's a, a whole bunch of ways in which they would deny these things. So even though the 15th Amendment seems to secure those voting rights for people, they were oftentimes denied the ability to, so remember, African-Americans, up for a time after the Civil War were starting to take office because people who had been connected to the Confederacy um, were, were restricted in a number of ways. Black people were allowed to vote. They were voting people into office. You had a number of African-Americans sitting in offices. Um, you had a number of uh, African-Americans were free to vote and they were doing a good job when the North had control over the South. But when the North started to pull out of the South and the South started to have control again, um, white people and their majorities started to dominate the vote, and they eventually not only removed African Americans from office, but they started to enact these kinds of laws to keep them from being able to vote people back into office. Um, and again, all of this is under the, uh, the auspices of... of <coughs> sorry, it's really loud when I cough into the, into the mic. Um, under the auspices of, of providing African Americans with as poor of an education as they possibly can, um, furthermore, um, propaganda was um, pushed forward that continued to try and depict African Americans as over-sexualized and beastly. Um, so one of the greatest pieces of propaganda in this is something called Birth of a Nation, uh, which was a film in, I think, 1924. And it is still listed on the American Film Institute, excuse me, as one of the 100 greatest films of all time. It's actually number 44 on that list. And if you've ever seen anything from it, it is an incredible racist type. Imagine if like Nazi propaganda was held up by the German Film Institute as like one of the greatest pieces of German film ever, ever made. This is, um, it's ahead of Raiders of the Lost Ark, No Country for Old Men, every Rocky movie ever made, like, it gets the nod over all of them. Okay, Rocky V, maybe, but none of the rest of them. And it's just an incredible thing that it's still there. Um, you, should, you should look up pictures of it. It's not good. Um, uh, coming into the 20th century, blacks 
often had severe financial limitations because of that. There were loan restrictions on them. White banks simply refused to give loans to them quite often. Um, black banks did not have the capital to be able to get loans for um, all the people who wanted them. After World War II, after African Americans fought in World War II, many of them had restricted use of the GI Bill. So the GI Bill was there for veterans to come back and be able to use, but African Americans were sometimes restricted in the loans that they could get. So loans that would be given to white GIs coming back were not given to black GIs. Black GIs were, were directed away from four-year colleges on the regular and towards sort of community college and trade skills. Um, that again, lacking education, meant that as we went forward, the housing limitations that were being placed on black people at the time were also starting to build up problems for them. They were, were forced into inner cities which is where the jobs were at the time in the early part of the, the after World War II, 40s and 50s, they were primarily there. That's where many African-Americans lived, but they were denied promotion primarily because they didn't have educational requirements to get those promotions, which companies put fervently on them. Um, even if those, those were primarily based on working skills and not on education of any sort, the fact that companies would do that and say, you can't, you can't have this job unless you've got an associate's degree. But African-Americans couldn't go to colleges that would give them the associate's degree to allow them to get that promotion. Once those companies started to move out into the suburbs, there's something happened that was called white flight, which took white people out of the inner cities and took them, or out of, they weren't inner cities at the time, they were just cities, and put them into the suburbs because that's where the manufacturing jobs went. But African-Americans quite often were, in a practice that was called redlining, um, were known to exist in a place, they were basically denied the ability either by homeowners associations, by realty companies, or by um, the laws themselves were not allowed to move out to these places to live. Not only that, but with the rising home prices, they couldn't afford to do it because they also couldn't get loans from banks. And so many of them were stuck in the inner cities. And then what happened is because they, they couldn't get good enough paying jobs because they weren't being promoted, they then couldn't move to where the jobs were and they couldn't drive to where the jobs were because they couldn't afford to have a car. So what you have is this building of the inner city where, where generation after generation after generation of African-American is living. It's now becoming harder to find jobs. Poverty is increasing. With the increase of poverty, regardless of what you think of the people who are in poverty, the increase of poverty we've seen throughout everywhere leads to an increase in crime. That increase in crime also led to an increase in drug use and drug abuse. So um, these practices continued. There is a sense of hopelessness that's being built. And you find that sense of hopelessness, by the way, really building up in the 1960s, especially if you read a lot of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he talks a lot about the, the hopelessness of African Americans and how they're fighting against that. He talks about how we're not hopeless all the time, which is, if you understand what he is saying, that it seems to be that he is fighting against the tendency for them to think that this is a hopeless situation. If you've ever been to one of those inner city high-rises, Cabrini Green in Chicago. It's a miserable place, right? And you can imagine that being stuck there in your whole life and seeing your parents stuck there, seeing people who really worked and tried to get out and couldn't get out. It's not just an African-American thing, by the way. When, when we lived in Tennessee, I had a pastor friend who worked in the hills of Tennessee, and the hills of Tennessee and West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky fell into the same kind of trap because when the coal mines moved out, 
those people fell into poverty, and the thing that replaced the hope of the gospel was meth, right? It was a hopelessness that was built into people because they saw their lives taken away from them. Uh, they, they didn't think that they were ever going to get out of that town, and they knew that they had no prospects in that town. And so there was just this, this grave hopelessness that was, that was rampant there. This is kind of what happened as well. So why did the church play such a major role in this? Um, let's turn to Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass is known as the father <clears throat> of the civil rights um, movement, although he was born in 1818. Uh, his mom was a slave. His dad, um, as was often the case, was most likely her owner, um, which was never frowned upon by people in the South. He was still a good standing member of his church, um, but nevertheless, he fathered a child by the slave who then he put into slavery, uh, believe it or not. So uh, even though it was his son, uh, which often happened, he put them into slavery, um, as was the the practice at the time, uh, Frederick, who was not born Frederick Douglass, um, he took the name Douglass because the name Douglass is awesome, um, but he took the name Douglass because he was, he was moving away from his, um, his former name because he was a runaway slave, and so he was trying to hide himself from that, but he became too famous to really have anything happen to him. So um, during that time, um, it was often the practice of slave owners to remove children from their mothers immediately. And so he never, he said he never saw his mother's face by the light of day. He did get to see her at night. Uh, he lived primarily with his grandmother. Eventually, he's sent to Baltimore to live with the Olds, um, A-U-L-D-S, the Olds. Uh, when he's 12, the woman of the house, Sophia, um, started to teach him how to read, which was interesting, started to teach him the alphabet and letters. And um, the husband told her that he didn't like it, he said, because education is just going to make them want their freedom. Right. So, uh, where's the quote? Douglas said, very well, thought I, knowledge unfits a child to be a slave. I instinctively assented to the proposition, and from that moment, I understood the direct pathway from slavery to freedom. So, he's, Hugh doesn't know that he did this, right? Hugh, Hugh just thought that he was keeping... Um, education from this child in order to keep him, him dumb, without options, so that he couldn't um, have anywhere to go. Uh, he had learned enough of the alphabet under Sophia, who eventually stopped teaching him. She kept on for a while, but Hugh eventually won out, and she stopped teaching him, but he knew enough to start reading placards and signs around the plantation around, uh, he was in, in more in the city of Baltimore, so it wasn't a plantation, but placards and signs. He would ask people what they said. He would sound it out, and he, he basically taught himself how to read. He had several attempts of trying to escape. Um, uh, there was one master that he had as he was continually sold around between the Alds and other people who beat him um, until he turned on him and confronted him. Um, eventually escaping in 1838 at the age of 20. Um, he's, if you've never read Frederick, you should. Um, he's brilliant and quite winning. Uh, it's hard to read primarily just because it's 19th century, but even for the 19th century, he is quite eloquent. He's very, very well read. Um, and so what I'm going to do is read you a longer section of text from a speech that he gave in um, 1852 on July 5th, uh, 
has to speak at a, a Rochester club of some sort, and uh, he was asked to speak about the 4th of July. And so um, it's a very famous speech. Uh, the speech goes by the name of what to the slave is the 4th of July. Um, I'm only going to pick up about two-thirds of the way through it, and I'm going to read to you kind of selections from the back half of it. But the, you need to know the first third of this speech is Frederick Douglass basically lauding the founding fathers because they understood the, the moment that they were in. He says they, they knew the oppression that they were feeling. They knew the, um, the indifference of the crown. They understood that, that they were being neglected and used. And so they did, and he, he was very, again, um, lauding them for their bravery and for their solution. He said, so they decided to just break away. And this was unheard of, right? You, you don't do this. And they were all very, very solemnly devoted to the crown, but it became too much and they pushed back. And so he's, he's not just, uh, what I'm going to read seems like he is very, very much trying to um, put in people's eyes the status of America at that time. I don't think that that's really the case. He's trying to He's, he does that purposely, uh, but then about a third of the way through, he gets to his point. He says this, Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon here to speak today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God, both for your sakes and ours, that an affirmative answer could truthfully be returned to these questions. But such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high, this is, again, 1852, so two years after the Fugitive Slave Act, not, not post-Civil War, pre-Civil War. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of liberty, justice, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. For black men, there are neither law, justice, humanity, nor religion. The fugitive slave law makes mercy to them a crime and bribes the judge who tries them. An American judge gets $10 for every victim he consigns to slavery and five when he fails to do so. The oath of any two villains is sufficient under this hell black enactment to send the most pious and exemplary black man into the remorseless jaws of slavery. His own testimony is nothing. He can bring no witnesses for himself. The minister of American justice is bound by the law to hear but one side, and that side is the side of the oppressor. Let this damning fact be perpetually told. At that very moment, so he, there's, in between a lot of what I'm saying, he's saying things. So here, he starts talking about churches in general. At that very moment, they are thanking God for the enjoyment of civil and religious liberty and for the right to worship God according to the dictates of their own consciences. At that time, they are utterly silent in respect to a law, the fugitive slave law, which robs religion of its chief significance and makes it utterly worthless to a world lying in wickedness. Did this law concern mint, anise, and cumin? 
Did it abridge the right to sing psalms, to partake of the sacrament, or to engage in any ceremonies of religion, it would be smitten by the thunder of a thousand pulpits. A general shout would go up from the church, demanding repeal, repeal, instant repeal. And it would go hard with any politician who presumed to solicit the votes of people without inscribing this motto on his banner. The fact that the church of our country, with fractional exceptions, does not esteem the fugitive slave law as a declaration of war against religious liberty implies that the church regards religion simply as a form of worship, an empty ceremony, not a vital principle requiring active benevolence, justice, love, and goodwill toward men. It esteems sacrifice above mercy, psalm singing above right doing, solemn meetings above practical righteousness, a worship that can be conducted by persons who refuse to give shelter to the houseless, to give bread to the hungry, clothing to the naked, and who enjoin obedience to a law forbidding these acts of mercy is a curse, not a blessing to mankind. They strip uh, the laws and the, the practicers of this kind of religion, strip the love of God of its beauty, and leave the throng of religion uh, and leave the throng of religion a huge, horrible, repulsive form. It is a religion for oppressors, tyrants, man-stealers, and thugs. It is not that pure and undefiled religion, which is from above, which is first pure, then peaceable, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. But it is a religion which favors the rich against the poor, which exalts the proud above the humble, which divides mankind into two classes, tyrants and slaves, which says to the man in chains, stay there, and to the oppressor, oppress on. It is a religion which may be professed and enjoyed by all the robbers and enslavers of mankind. It makes God a respecter of persons, denies his fatherhood of the race, and tramples in the dust the great truth of the brotherhood of man. All this we affirm to be true of the popular church and the popular worship of our land and nation, a religion, a church, and a worship on which the authority of inspired wisdom we pronounce to be an abomination in the sight of God. Now, um, Douglas is not alone in saying that kind of stuff. It was known by people far and wide. And remember, he is speaking in the north. So he is not primarily speaking to churches in the south. He's talking, when he, he talks about the fugitive slave law, what he's talking about are churches in the north not speaking up against it. Because the north had to acquiesce to that law to make a compromise, Right? He's saying, if the churches of the North, who claim to be on our side, who claim to be abolitionists, would have stood up to it, it would never have happened. This is, two, two factors here are going to be played out throughout the rest of sort of the, the Jim Crow era, post-Civil War, and then the Civil Rights era. One, it is a religious problem, as Douglas lays out, because these sorts of laws do not simply depict civil areas of vagueness, but they are anthropologically important. They are talking about the equality of men and the goodness of all men to be able to achieve the things that America has said for long that they ought to achieve. So he points at this and says that this is a religious matter. From the very beginning, African Americans saw all of these things as religious matters. They weren't just legal matters. They weren't just civil matters. They were religious. 
It, it impacted what we said about man. It impacted how we related to other men. It impacted how we viewed the love of God. It impacted how we viewed God. He lays all of that out very well in here. And secondly, because he sees it as a religious thing, he also sees that white churches, generally speaking, weren't doing anything. He does say in here, by the way, that there are fractional exceptions to that, but the general course of it is white churches aren't doing anything, okay? This is not something that was limited to Frederick Douglass's time. So the continual complaint throughout not just Jim Crow, but the civil rights era was that white churches were not doing what they needed to do. That was a continual complaint. So um, I don't agree with everything that's written in it, but Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, basically talks about how the white church was complacent continuously in these things. So he talks about the fact that Billy Graham, um, during his, he talks about a number of things, I'm just picking out one example. Um, Billy Graham, during his crusades, would keep his crusades from being able to be segregated. He says you can't, you can't have a separate section for African Americans or black people, they're going to be mixed. But at the same time, he wouldn't speak out about civil rights issues. He would speak out about communism and did so all the time. But he didn't speak out about civil rights issues. He just refused to do it. This is the kind of thing that, that Luther, Martin Luther King does as well. In his um, letter from Birmingham jail, uh, that letter, if you've ever heard it or read it, is, uh, you can find it everywhere online. Make sure when you find these things, you don't find abridged versions of them, find the full text of them. Um, in his letter from a Birmingham jail, he, he's writing to basically clergymen. This is a letter not to people in general, but to clergymen, and not to every clergyman. He's writing to people who would, who would confess themselves to be on his side. Okay, so, so there was a, a, um, a statement given by a number of what, what he would call moderate Conser or moderate clergymen that asked him basically to wait, like let, let the system work, right? So he's going around doing these protests. He's in jail in Birmingham because he did this nonviolent protest. I'm not, uh, memory doesn't serve me what that protest was, sitting at a lunch counter that he shouldn't have been sitting at, something silly. Um, he's in jail for it, and they're, they're basically saying, listen, they're giving all these reasons why he should wait. The system will work. You've got to give it time. Um, you're breaking laws, that's not good. Uh, you are inciting violence, right, because violence is happening, right, even though they are not committing violence, violence is sort of happening to them. And so these ministers are writing to him saying, hey, we're on your side, but we just want you to wait. And, I mean, King, King writes back in a very kind way. Um, you can tell that he's not happy about all of it, but he's, he's very kind. Um, basically saying, listen, you don't, you don't seem to understand what justice is. You don't seem to understand the pains of waiting and how long we've waited. So at this point, like, it's been over a century since the Emancipation Proclamation was issued and the Civil War was over, and he's still being told to wait, which he has the famous line, um, waiting almost means that it's never, you know, it's, I don't, it's not a famous line, but he says, the call to wait is basically a call to it never happening. Right? It's never going to happen. The, the oppressors are not just going to give up on oppressing people unless the oppressed 
rise up and make them do it. Um, what the, and it's also, he also basically calls them out for being in the cheap seats. It's easy for you to call on us to wait. You're not the ones who are suffering. So in that letter, he writes this. Oh, I'm running out of time. I had hoped that the white moderate would see this. Perhaps I was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that a few members of the oppressor race can understand the deep groans and passionate yearnings of the oppressed race, and still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be rooted up by strong, persistent, determined action. Okay. Basically, he's saying, you guys want us to wait, but you don't have to suffer for it, and you don't actually know what's going on. Okay. So you've got from... from Frederick Douglass's time all the way through the Civil Rights Act and then beyond the Civil Rights Act, the complaint coming from the African-American church that what is happening to us is theological in nature and white churches repeatedly are not doing what they need to do about it. Okay? So when you ask why was the church so involved in things like that, that is the reason. Those are the reasons that are continually and typically given. And that has been a consistent theme throughout a number of African-American writings that I've had concerning these issues is that, that we, we looked for help, we couldn't find any. You tend to think that these aren't theological issues. These are theological issues, okay? And the complaints about them being liberal, two things about that. One, that particular divide between liberal and fundamentalist doesn't really hold for the African-American church for one reason that I'm about to explain, but for a completely separate reason. That was like a very white problem. And it was an academic problem that bled down into churches, but it was an academic problem. So this is a problem of, of German high criticism coming over into places like Harvard and Princeton, which then filtered down into other churches. But you know who wasn't being admitted into Harvard and Princeton? Black people. Calling them, and that distinction, by the way, basically meant that the liberals want this, they're, they're going to throw away the Bible in order to keep their social justice bits, while conservatives, basically, by the way, J John Gresham Macon, one of the, the fathers of that movement, who wrote more pieces of the fundamentals than anyone else, and wrote Christianity and Liberalism, the great work against liberalism, was a racist. Like, not kind of a, if you squint, you might think he's racist kind of racist, like, I'm going to be very affront about my racism kind of racist. They were the ones who were like, no, the gospel is for individual conversion. And the, and the African-American church the whole time was like, I don't know what you're talking about. That, that was not a conversation that they had. Which brings us to the justifiable. That <coughs> While uh, I wouldn't recommend all of the other book, I'd recommend every bit of this one. So um, Esau McCulley, uh, wrote Reading While Black. This was published in 2020, I think. Uh, it's not specifically for us. It's written primarily for African Americans, but nevertheless, um, what he talks about in this book is precisely that issue. He says, when I went to college, I heard about this high criticism, and I saw within the liberals all the social stuff that my church had always done, but they rejected the Bible. And I went to an evangelical church, and they upheld the Bible like my church always did. But they, they didn't want any of the social stuff going on. And he said those were two completely different conversations that he was unready for. 
because that wasn't his church. His church always held up the Bible, always held up the importance of the Bible and the Word of God, and upheld the importance for that word to be interpreted and understood in terms of social action. So, um, I'll read to you a bit of this here in just a second as well. One of the things that McCullough, McCauley, excuse me, um, Dr. McCauley makes very firm is the kind of nature, and this is, a, is about how to read the Bible as an African-American. He makes very clear, this was, this was the exodus for us, right? So when, when you understand how the, the exodus, we've, we've talked about it as the picture of our redemption. It's literally the title of the sermon series that I'm going through, the picture of our redemption. They took that very seriously. Like they, they saw what God was doing in the exodus as a picture of what he would do for them. And so um, when we, we start to listen to what they, they say, uh, this is the way Macaulay says, this is the way African Americans have always interpreted the Bible. So he, he talks about slavery. He, he's now far enough back in the book to say, well, what does the Bible say about slavery? Because the, the slave owners would, would go to First Timothy, they would go to various passages, they would point at the Old Testament slavery laws, and they would say, see, God allows slavery. And so the first thing Macaulay does is point out that just because something is in the law doesn't mean that it follows the character of God. And the text that he points to is the text on divorce, right? So can we divorce a woman for any reason? And Jesus says, well, that's not the point of creation, right? Moses gave you that law because of the hardness of your heart, but it was not so from the beginning. And so Macaulay says, the way Jesus is interpreting the laws and interpreting the Torah is that the way things are in creation, the very acts of God, the immediate personal acts of God tell you about his character. The laws might reflect his character insofar as they want to stop the movement of sin, but they might not be the epitome of everything that God wants and thinks is good, okay? So that's at least part of what Jesus is talking about there. He goes on to say this. Um, here I want to, uh, well, I can't go there. So, I want to pursue the question of slavery from a slightly different angle, namely slavery and God's character. Uh, does God appear to take pleasure in slavery? The Exodus narrative is definitive in this regard. What is God like? He is a God who hears the sufferings of an enslaved people and rescues them. This rescue becomes part of his resume. When the Israelites prayed to God, they prayed to a God whose character was revealed in his liberating activity. God's liberating character was to be reflected in Israel's attitude toward outsiders. There's a theological link then from the compassion of Israel to the very character of God. We are so used to this Old Testament story that the Exodus has lost its power. We have been trained in slaveholder exegesis, where the limits on sin, that is like the divorce law, right? The limits on sin, that slavery was there to limit sin. The limits on sin have transformed into the ideal and the stories have been sapped of their strength. The enslaved black Christians knew no fancy exegetical moves could convince them that the God who liberated the Israelites didn't care about enslaved persons in this country. And he quotes one person, but man, you could go back to, to spirituals and see this all over the place. Exodus is just the, the center of the way they viewed the Bible. And the enslaved people read or heard in the biblical text about a God who delighted in liberation. And this gave them hope. It was not that the slave passages didn't exist. They simply couldn't be used to undo the testimony of the Exodus. 
And when they turned to the biblical text, they didn't see God describing himself as a God who enslaves people, and therefore his chosen nations should enslave others. Instead, they saw the stories of Daniel, Moses, and Jonah in a much in the stories of Daniel, Moses, and Jonah, a much different God than the one described by their slave masters. And so that's the sort of biblical justification that they have. Like, this is what our God does, right? Now, as I'm preaching through Exodus, I'm, I'm talking about <clears throat> the fact that Exodus signifies something much deeper than just what's going on there, okay? So, Exodus is a picture of our redemption and a picture of liberating us from our enemies. And for the vast majority of us, what is our enemy? What is the, the thing that actually enslaves us? What is that? It's our sin, right? I, I don't preach that he is going to free us from those who enslave us because, like, we're not enslaved by other human beings. But it's hard not to read that as a natural understanding of what the text is there to say, that God would somehow leave his people enslaved, that he gives them a picture of being freed from literal slavery while allowing them to be enslaved. And what Macaulay is, is, Dr. Macaulay is saying is, doesn't make any sense. You're not reading the Bible well. Like, you're not even upholding the, the very front of the text, let alone getting behind the text. And so when they speak, when, when the African-American church views the Bible, this is the, the pattern that they continually see in the Bible. And that's why all these sort of social issues in civil rights era, the church was just heavily involved in all of that because they saw it, they, they viewed slavery as only ending by fact, by legal statement in 1864. But, but for them, slavery did not end right? And you, you, can, you can argue if you want to with the way that they're interpreting things, and you can argue if you want to with their understanding of history, um, how they view things with the way, that, but, but at least understand where it is they're coming from and the history that has been passed down to them from generation to generation of this is the way we interpret the Bible, which, by the way, I think is right. I, I think that that's right. And one of the reasons why it escapes us is exactly what Martin Luther King said. This is not your experience. Like you, you don't have experience with this. Like you're, we still have African Americans in churches whose parents were sharecroppers, who's, who, who existed and lived under Jim Crow laws. Like before the civil rights era, to think that they're going to turn the corner and believe that everything's okay in one generation where they can remember these things seems short-sighted at best. And uh, so all of that to say, the the way in which African Americans have viewed history, the way in which they understand the Bible, and the way they have interpreted the Bible is, is legitimate and at, at some very core sense rooted in Scripture. It, it comes from a good reading of Scripture, and I think that the, a lot of the charges of liberalism against churches like that uh, seem to fall on, on deaf ears from African Americans because they they're, they're not built that way. This is not, that sort of liberal conservative distinction isn't from them. Which, by the way, one other point. When people complain that Martin Luther King Jr. was liberal, right? This is one of the complaints. He had, he had iffy views on things, right? Where did he pick up those views from? Anybody? Union Theological Seminary, New York. 
Why did he go to Union? Because they accepted him. Because that's where he could go. They complain. The complaint about the black church being filled with liberal preachers falls somewhat on deaf ears when the most conservative churches, who would have been fundamentalist in their understanding, wouldn't allow African Americans to go to school there. They just wouldn't have. King wasn't getting a PhD at Southern. It wasn't going to happen. And so these sorts of, of thinking about the African American church in that way, um, hopefully just, it's, it's not always wrong. There are some African American churches that are really liberal. There's some white churches that are super liberal as well. Um, so we're not, we're not clearing all African American churches and saying everything they do is right. But it is saying that simply because a church seeks social justice doesn't mean that it has fallen into the trap of liberalism. It just, that, that cannot be upheld. We need to do better work than that. So uh, any, any questions? We've, we've got a minute or two for questions. Right, and, and they, make, they make, you know, when, when you read what Frederick Douglass was saying, he clearly has a, a, a place carved out for, for several folk, but one of the things that makes her stand out is the fact that she is an exception, right? She's an exceptional woman, and if everyone who claimed to believe in Christ would have done what she did, it wouldn't have been exceptional. It would have been the average work of the church. Yeah. Right. Right. Dave? Right.
So they would, I think that part of that answer is that it is a theological issue, as you pointed out. Not just that these are all theological issues, but the, the way in which an institution decides to handle itself in the culture is difficult. One of the reasons why it's difficult is because we are in a situation today that is not clearly and, and very straightforwardly addressed by the New Testament because they were in, they were such a minority in that culture that there was no real political engagement that was going to to actively change those laws. And so <clears throat> the focus in the, in the New Testament is slightly different. But while it is a theological issue, it also then becomes sort of um, this, this historical momentum issue as well, right? So a lot of the conservative white churches, I would, I would say, don't have that same level of involvement um, as the black church not just because they have clearly thought through the theological implications of that and rejected them, but because historically that's just not what they did. They didn't need to, right? The, the laws that affected the people who were sitting in the pews were, were never that detrimental to them. Even if they, they knew that these laws were bad, they, they didn't fight against them. And then when, when we did end up getting laws that were passed that the church thought were wrong, we immediately organized ourselves very quickly, right? One can think of abortion as one of those things that the church just coalesced around very, very quickly, um, that this was, was outside the pale of anything that we could have out in the wider world, even though it wasn't just that your people are not to get abortions, it's that, that abortion is murder in general. So historically, I, don't, I think that part of the, the answer, and not good or bad, it's just this is what happened, was that white churches didn't have to have this sort of social interaction because there wasn't a great enough historical impetus for us to do that. But then once we saw that there was, a lot of that, we're not going to get involved in politics stuff, we're just going to preach the gospel, didn't really play anymore. So, but... but that, I agree. Right. And and I don't I don't know that that's necessarily an entailment of what um so there's yeah, I I think that you're right. We're not disagreeing with one another really. Um the other the other side of that might just be that institutions seem to act through the will of their members as well. And when you have members pointed in one direction from the outside, you might be able to characterize it the way that you have, or from the inside, you might be able to characterize even crossway the way that you have. If you were a pro-choice person from the outside, they probably wouldn't characterize us that way. I think that they would be much more, you guys are organized against it. You, you support pro-life causes, you support you know, the message of pro-life, you support Life Clinic, you support these things as an institution, you might not be as, as upfront about all of that as, as other places are, but nevertheless, they might view it slightly different. So I, I think that you're right to at least point out that these are not, there are not straightforward questions on any, or straightforward answers on any of these issues about how much social interaction we are going to have. And I, I think that, again, the, the answer comes back in that we we just don't have a straightforward way of, of 
doing that that we pull directly from the pages of the Bible. We can't do what Israel did because we're not Israel. Making this into a theocracy seems to be not what the New Testament's getting at, and certainly it's not a Baptist thing. Um, On the other hand, it seems like we should do everything we can to support laws that are moral and are rightly reflecting the character of God. I'll admit that I have not given that much thought. So I've given it some thought, but like where do we draw the line, I think is an incredibly tricky question as a pastor, and I have not yet calibrated myself to do it right. I'll just be frank with everybody. I just don't know how to do it. Because I think that there are things that, that probably do deserve attention, and there are probably things that don't deserve attention, and I don't know how to work through those politically from the pulpit or as a leader of a, of a church. Yeah, it, it is. I, I just, it'd be easy if, if this was a theocracy, we would just do what I said, um, which would be the easiest way to go, frankly, vote for Doug. Um, but that's not, that's not what we're here to do. And then how we then balance the rest of that out, I think is a, just an incredibly tricky question. And so at least one of the things we need to see is that African Americans are not unaware of the Bible's place and not unaware of, of what the Bible says and the reasons why they do this are not just for the social benefits of it, they're doing it because they at least felt compelled by God to do it. And, and that should, at the very least, be respected and understood and, and in some sense, be supported. Like, we, we ought to want people to do what they feel convicted by the Scripture to do. Um, all right, next week, uh, a lighter topic when we talk about fog machines and the coming of the Spirit um, in, in megachurches. Uh, we're going we're gonna to have somebody uh, sing a solo with an electric guitar. It's going to be great. We'll worship God finally and truly together. Um, so let us pray and uh, ask for God's blessing on our time. Father, we are thankful um, that while we, we don't have a direct word from you, Father, your word is so rich and true and pure uh, that we can draw much from it. And we're, we're faithful uh, to your word when we understand it rightly and we do what it says. And that is our prayer. Um, our prayer is that where we, have, um, where we have been silent and we should have spoken, that your word leads us there and that we are not only repentant, but, but a, have a firm and a solid desire to follow what your instructions tell us to do. Um, where we are vocal and ought to be silent, help us to understand these things. Um, let us always affirm your word, hold up your word as a model of truth and righteousness in our world. Uh, Let us strive to get others to understand it and to be uh, beholden by it and obedient to it. And in all things, as a church, let us glorify you by our ways and actions. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.